0: You can open them up to Psalm, book of Psalm 149. There's just one verse we'll look at here in a moment there. Um, But we are starting a new series um, that I'm excited to start. Uh, We are calling our seven shaping virtues. So seven weeks on seven different virtues Uh, These are virtues that as a Sovereign Grace Church, our our denomination, our family of churches, that we desire to be be present in and to be displayed in our churches, in our community. These are are virtues that we've esteemed historically in our churches, and and we want to continue to shape our churches as we go into, into the future. And these are humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, servanthood, and godliness. Now, as we dive into this series, it may feel a little bit different than what we normally do. Typically, we preach what we call exegetically through the the Bible, we kind of book by book or uh, uh, chapter by chapter through the Bible. So this is going to feel a little bit different as we go through this series. But I want to begin the series by just doing a little setup kind of on the what and the Why? Before we jump into our first virtue, the term virtue comes from the Latin word virtus, from the Greek word meaning moral excellence. So, a virtue is something that has, has moral excellence. There's a quality about it that is to be esteemed and it is, it is heightened in its excellence. So the Greeks had their lists like justice and temperance and courage. We have maybe some unspoken virtues that we. We look to, as a, a society, even our neighbors in our community, right? The honesty, respect, the, the, the neighbor who is quick to lend things to me. There's a, something virtuous about that. The Apostle Paul, he had his triad, triad of virtues that he would often identify in his letters, like in 1 Corinthians 13. So faith, hope, and love abide in these three. The greatest of these is love So when we speak of our our shaping virtues, it's not like these are the only virtues or the most important of all virtues, or as if we have some sort of patent on these. Um, Every church shaped and empowered by the gospel should have these virtues in them. Gospel truths that shape a gospel culture within body of believers and in their churches. So these are are fruits of the gospel in the life of God's people, so biblical characteristics, fruits that flow ultimately from the gospel as expression towards God of loving him and as expressions of loving others. A couple of years ago, we did a series uh, on our shared values as a sovereign grace church, so seven theological convictions or values that unite us as a family of churches that shape our denomination, our local practices, such as gospel centrality, reform theology, biblical manhood and womanhood, our interdependence and mission with other churches. And, and we believe these values are, are really important. They, they are important. We believe these are what Scripture teaches us. Yet, just having doctrine isn't, isn't all we need. The doctrine, these beliefs, must shape the way we live, who, who we are, our, our community, our, our culture, our lives, how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world. So, so values and virtues are needed. I appreciate the, this observation from a, a long-time pastor in Sovereign Grace uh, Churches. His name is Mickey Conley. He wrote This values without virtues will be cold and ultimately unattractive, neither glorifying God nor adorning the gospel. Virtues without values will be shallow because they are untethered. To gospel truths. So, we want values to keep us tethered to Scripture, to Christ and His Word, and those values then shape and adorn and beautify those precious truths that we believe in. So, they beautify our serving, they beautify our encouraging, they empower and beautify our gratitude and our generosity and godliness and our joy. A friend, a couple friends of mine, recently went. They went to Augusta National Golf Club for the Masters Tournament. If you know golf, follow golf. This is like one of the the apexes of the experience of a golf a, a, a golf tournament. They described this amazing experience of walking around the golf course, this impeccable care for the greens, the the landscaping, the sidewalks, the way the staff interacted with the what they called the patrons. Everyone was a patron. And the friend said it was like the Disneyland of golf courses. And this, he said that because his experience was a feeling like I, I've been there before. The qualities, the priorities that Disneyland places in the value of excellence of this magical otherworldly experience was transferred onto this, this golf course. We want, we want people to experience something. Uh, but not us. We want people to experience Christ. We want the gospel of Jesus to grow in us, the qualities, the virtues of of what we are namely in Christ himself that aren't making much of our church, that are making much of our denomination, but of our Savior. We want people to experience Jesus, to display his grace and his glory. So in turn, they're seeing and experiencing his generosity, experiencing his servant-like humility through us and, and in us. Him is what we want. And so, to see them as shaping virtues means they're not going to just be experienced on a Sunday morning. We don't want these just to be shaping virtues that someone experiences at maybe a small group or a community group, but shaping our lives when we walk out of these doors. How we engage our coworkers on Monday mornings, meeting our neighbors in in an increasingly hostile, angry, critical world full of self-glory and self-promotion, we, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. We actually have a demand on us as Christ's people to look very different than that. So we want Christ's virtues in us. So as believers, how will we respond to criticism or when we're wronged or how we live in response to hardship and sufferings? Hostile, bitter, and angry or humble, thankful, joy, and so on. So, Considering and pursuing these shaping virtues are important because these are virtues that are in Christ. And by his grace, it will be the likeness of Christ formed in us so that we can love him and that we can love others well. Again, these seven virtues are not an exhaustive list. Uh, They're not intended to be, nor do we personally or as a church embody and display them in perfection. But... These are virtues we can, by God's grace, through his work in us, ones we can pursue, ones we can cultivate for us and by God's grace in in our generations to come. Humility, gratitude, joy, encouragement, servanthood, generosity, and godliness. Psalm 149 says this, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation, we're going to consider the virtue of, of humility this morning, and so let's pray and let's ask the Lord to be with us, Lord. As we as we consider these virtues in this this morning and in this coming series, Lord, we 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 know that that our pursuit of these being cultivated in, in us is. They're not an end in themselves. Uh, gratitude or joy or servanthood, things that you would shape in us through your son Jesus is, is not for our end. Lord, it is, it is for your glory and your good. And so as I, Lord, I ask that as we consider these, you would, you would continue to maximize your glory as we move towards you in trust and, and asking for your help because, Lord, we, we want you to be you, you, to be shaped in us, Lord Jesus. And so, um, as we begin this series and we consider humility, Lord, we we do as we've been even considering at the beginning through worship, our posture is one that is bowed down, that is looking to Christ. Uh, so let our hearts be upon you. Work your spirit in our hearts today. Amen. Amen. So we begin today with the virtue of humility. We begin with a sermon on humility. There, there usually has to be some disclaimers on that. Uh, one, I, I'm not an expert on humility. Um, I am a proud man seeking to grow in humility. Uh, there's no arrival on my part. Um, just to be clear. Uh, just to be clear. But I want to begin with humility because I, I think that I mean, we we could jump on on any of these virtues. I think it's helpful, maybe even necessary to start here, for it's foundational to all the others. To to know and take the posture of a servant is to require humility. To to live a life of gratitude requires a lowly sense of how much we have that we don't deserve and how much we can be thankful for in giving to others. To, to even have a sense of what God values and esteems requires humbly coming under him, seeking him, knowing him, looking to him. I love this invitation from Psalm 149. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He, he loves His people to be with his people. He loves, as we saw, the hum- to exalt those who are humble, exalting them into himself. But there's Apart to this, he endures who are these people that he looks to? He adorns the, the humble with salvation. He adorns the humble with salvation. Our very ability to experience salvation rests on the experience and posture of humility in our life. Without humility, we will not want God. We will not see our need for God. Yet those who are humble, God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, but this is to the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite, meaning repentant in spirit, and trembles at his word. God looks to, he, he sees the, the humble. His, his gaze is towards the humble who, who are under his word. He was speaking these words to his people Israel, even with all of their, their outward sacrificial and religious works that could be done, His gaze wasn't just because of their works. His gaze was upon those who had the posture of their heart, which was in lowly trust on him, trust and worship before him. So to begin with a pursuit of humility, we must begin with exposing the opposite of that. That is the destructive nature in the problem of pride. It's it's life or death for the Christian. I appreciate what author and teacher John Stott put he put it this way, at every stage of Christian development, in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy, and humility, our greatest friend. I, I agree with this. I, in every stage of development, our personal growth, our, our discipleship as a church, we want humility to be our, our friend, and we want to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy, the enemy of pride, and so So let's consider this this enemy of pride. To better understand humility, we want to consider this destruction, a destructive nature of pride. Uh, Ascending to the peak of Mount Everest is still one of the the most rarest climbing feats. uh, For mountaineers, one of the largest mountains in the world, peak of 29,000 feet, roughly the cruising altitude of of a jet airliner. Very few do it. Those who do it takes thousands of dollars, months, if not years of training, actually months to to climb it. Many have died attempting this climb, and it's a powerful mountain not to be reckoned with. Sadly, many lose their life on their way down rather than on their way up, and one man knew this very well. In May 1995, there was a man named Goran Krump. He was a Swedish climber. Young, he was very skilled. His nickname was the Crazy Swede. He was talented. He, he was this sort of powerhouse, unstoppable climber. And he did the ascent by himself, a solo climb, without any oxygen bottles or any Sherpa help, which is just radically like, amazing. And yet, about 100 meters from the top, he was only about 100 meters from the top, he turned around. The, the snow became too deep. He realized it was too late. And if he continued, it would be dark and it would be dangerous, it would be a perilous, probably trip back down. So he stopped, he turned around and he came down. So close within the reach of this peak. He knew the power of the mountain and he knew his human limitation, his human weakness in relationship to the glory and the power of this mountain. It wasn't to be reckoned with. He, he realized that, and it took a great deal of self-awareness and humility, I'd say, to make that decision. And this relates to us. Our ability to understand our internal, inborn posture of pride comes and is, not, is realized not with comparing ourselves to ourselves, not comparing ourselves to others, which we often do, and we could, we could look good in, in that really easy Just find somebody else who's different or not quite like you. But it is exposed, and we truly see it by seeing ourselves rightly before God, who he is and who we are. So our definitions of humility begin with God himself. This is how John Calvin put it. It is evident that man never attains the true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God. And come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Meaning we begin, we don't begin by a pursuit of humility by self-awareness. We begin with God-awareness. We see ourselves as created beings, as image-bearers of God, but dependent and created and under our King and our Creator, and as his created beings, though image-bearers, we are sinners. We we have rejected him. We have turned from him. And this this turning, this is pride. It's pride at, at its core, which is rejection of God. Satan himself rose in arrogance, exalting himself against God. Pride is present at the very beginning pages of the Bible in the beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve, turning from dependent trust on God and believing that we will make ourselves like God, we will make ourselves rulers we know best, and we will turn from his good rule to our own. And therefore, we must be sobered by God's posture toward pride and its dangers. God hates pride. Proverbs sixteen five: the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 8.13, wisdom is personified, speaking God's position. I hate pride and arrogance. God resists the proud. James 4, God is opposed to the proud. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God does not only hate pride, he, he resists the proud. For pride is is really a rejection of acknowledging his glory and seeking self-glory, self-exaltation. And there is only one who deserves glory and praise, and that is God himself. God does not share his glory. We see this in Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth, what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, this is my name, my glory I give to no other. After reassuring Israel in this this chapter of his promises, of his of his covenant, of his kindness, of what he's given to them, and his gracious giving of breath and life and all things, Israel goes to turn from him, turn from the Lord, to repent and they, they walk away from him. They turned from dependent trust and faith in God and they sought their own glory. They did not worship God and glorify God as the one who had given them all this in his gracious covenant. And judgment was coming. We see terror and the result of this type of rejection even in the New Testament Acts. Acts 12 and at an appointed day Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That, that is sobering. That is sobering. Is, we see God's resistance and hate and pride and judgment in the Old Testament. We see this Reality here in the New Testament. It is the same God today that we. He hates pride. He judges pride. Form in the form of self glory. Pride in the form of fearing man. Pride in the, the form of, of anxiety that riddles us because we're overly self conscious of ourself. Pride in the form of religious and spiritual pride. Pride and preoccupation with things and money and house and positions and and our appearance. Pride that leads to jealousy and ingratitude. Pride that shows up in our preferences to talk and talk and not let people and not listen to others. Pride that makes us stubborn and easily offended and unaccountable. I mean, the the list just, just keeps going on. This pride is ugly and it sneaks in in all kinds of forms and degrees. Sometimes it hides in the quiet person who seems to, to be the nobody like a Gideon. Remember Gideon, God used Gideon and called him up and he turned into an awesome leader. He delivered God's people from his enemy, the enemies and, God, and the people wanted to make him king after all of that deliverance and he said, oh no, only God is king, I'm not, I'm not a king. But then he gathers a bunch of gold from everybody and they melt it down and they make an ephod, which is like an apron. The people started worshiping it, they turn away from the Lord and then he has a son whom he names Abimelech, which means my father is king, which is him. How quickly that turns. It is a common and great enemy for us all. I appreciate what C.J. Mahaney says. It's the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. So it's not a question if Nate, does Nate have pride or not? No, it's like, no, where where is the presence of pride in my life? And there is presence of pride in my life. I used to refer to myself innocently as a perfectionist. Um, I, I used to because I, I realized it was it was an easy way for me to cloak my pride. Um, I just have a high standard of excellence. Um, it's just my personality, it's the way I'm wired. Now, there's nothing wrong with us pursuing excellence in a God-glorifying way. I I think we should should pursue things that are beautiful and good and pursue excellent. Yet, in my life, it manifests in no one being able to do it as excellent as me or as perfect as me. I become the standard, and this leads to all kinds of self-critical spirit and self-righteousness. Thankfully, God, by His grace, is put his finger in conviction in my life. He's used brothers in my life. He's used my wife in my life to, to work in my heart and address this issue and still is. But this, this is the beauty of those who are proud. We're not stuck there. We're not stuck there. Andrew Murray writes, there are three great motives that urge us to humility. It becomes me as a creature, as a sinner, and as a saint. God works his grace and comes to those who are proud and lost to find salvation by, by moving us through this sort of path, creature, sinner, and saint, exposing pride by seeing ourselves rightly by, before God, and we start coming to him, and we see us as created, and we see our, our distance from him because of our sin, and yet he, he provides mercy and grace that we could be awakened to these very things. Meaning his grace comes to us as we see ourselves as the creature and him as holy king and our sin and yet he, he, he comes to us by his mercy and grace and his rescue which will transform glory thieves into beloved saints. We encounter grace. We encounter grace along with these things. So proud, the proud are resisted but his grace flows and is magnetized. God gives grace to the humble is what scripture tells us to those who humble themselves before Him, acknowledge our need before Him, acknowledge our trust and our only hope in Him, ultimately because of God's grace in the gospel of His Son. So we see the destruction of pride and we also see grace in the pursuit of humility because it is something we are called to pursue. We are commanded in First Peter, clothe yourselves and all, all of you with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In many other places, I therefore urge you to walk a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humility is commanded and possible by us encountering God and what he has done to rescue proud people by his son Jesus through his mercy and grace. So the pursuit of humility comes as a response to us encountering Christ in the gospel. Again, John Stott putting it similar to what Andrew Murray said. Humility is honesty. I love that. Honesty. Acknowledging the truth about ourselves that as creatures we depend on our creator's power and as sinners on our savior's grace. Humility is honesty. It takes Honesty. He would go he would go on to say that pride is really pride is really hypocrisy because we're denying the reality of who God is and who we are really in response to him. Humility is honesty. It acknowledges these realities that we are lost, that we're needy, and we're desperately need in need of hope. We're desperately in need of somebody, a savior. And this this helps us be awakened to what true humility looks like. And this is what Jesus taught his disciples. Remember Jesus teaching about the greatness of the kingdom to his disciples and the gospels. this sort of upside down of what the world teaches about power and success and going up. And Jesus is teaching, and it's actually the opposite. You go down. And remember in Matthew 18, he said, at this time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is something we need to see. Humility is not an optional virtue. Right? It's not like we open our closet in the morning and we sort of like, any, meeny, miny, mo. which one do we want to take? Note what Jesus says. This is not simply a nice lesson on character building Jesus says regarding humility, if you don't come humbly like a child, you can't even see the kingdom. You can't even come in to the kingdom. To be like a child is, is not a, a perfection in character. Kids are not uh, perfect in character. They can be naughty. But kids, in this particular time, Jesus is drawing attention to their lowly status. They were the most lowly, they were needy beyond comparison, and so to come as a child is to become absolutely dependent, humble dependence, a worshipful posture on the one who is perfect and who alone is great. The Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, does this in our hearts. We are awaken to see our moral bankruptcy, our helplessness, and to see, To see that, we then confess ourselves as those who have rebel hearts and are glory thieves trying to steal his glory and praise, who only deserves glory and praise, and we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who came to us to free us from this, to know his glory and his grace and love that is undeserved. It is before Christ, it is before the cross that we we hit this sort of, this leveling field. I've been watching the the NFL draft with my boys some this week and just amazed at the the level of talent, of skill. They run those little sort of commercials of the guy and all his stats and all of their plays and 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 all the, the special skills they have and trying to rank one before the other and it is before the cross, it is before the cross, we're humbled, all of us. Equal footing. Guilty under the just wrath of God because of our sins and yet all of those who would trust and place their cru- trust in Christ reconciled, cleansed all by his perfect life and his righteous obedience that is accounted as our own. Not our stats, not our achievements and therefore none of us stand to be able to boast. Humbled. Humbled. We see this is what Paul does in Philippians. I, I, it was hard to just avoid preaching Philippians 2 again. We were in Philippians a lot in our series, but, but remember, Paul urges humility, the pursuit of humility in the lives of the church there in Philippi, the believers, and he, and he went to the purest example of humility, the source of humility for the lives of God's people. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, remember Jesus, let's consider Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death On a cross. As we lift our hearts and our attention to Jesus and what he did, that the lowly humility of Christ embracing the cross, our cross that we deserved, a punishment we deserved that he took instead, we are awakened to humility. Because we see and we encounter his humility. Humility. The cross is where we go. The cross is something we do not leave. It's why, why we sing of the cross, the wonderful cross, to, to address our pride like this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. We realize in any attempt, any, anything that we gain in comparison to the riches that we do get in Christ. We, we, it, it's a prayer. Lord, we pour contempt. We pour hate on our pride as well. This is what we want to disdain because of the glory and the riches of Jesus. But this is what, this is what comes to us in the cross. We realize our bankruptcy, but we realize how much we have been given in the love and the mercy of Christ. Our, our bankruptcy... And seeing then the glory and the cost of, the, of Christ does not lead us to despair it, it, and groveling and like we go around as eores. that's not humility, but we realize we're sons and daughters of God, loved by the King, and so we're able to walk in confidence because of his love for us, turning all of our attention, all of the glory to him because of his love and forgiveness and what he's done on our behalf. So, deeply loved, deeply in need of salvation. I appreciate, I've appreciated for many years uh, C.J. Mahaney's little book on humility, and he draws attention to a, a few practical suggestions on how to cultivate humility in our lives, and ones that have helped me. I just want to mention these, and maybe they would serve you today, to consider the attributes of God, to, to study and think and consider God's attributes. Remember, we begin with who God is, God awareness. We consider and we study, can ponder his power and his wisdom and his holiness and his glory. When we see him rightly, we can also see ourselves rightly and give him the glory he deserves. We, we stay near the cross. As I already noted, taking Paul's approach with the Philippians, we, we consider the cross, we consider why it's necessary, and we consider its achievements, and it does help us pour contempt on our pride. Studying the doctrines of grace where these truths remind us of God's saving and sovereign act to rescue his people. His his electing, his grace that overcomes our hard hearts, his preserving and keeping grace. All of this a work of his grace, not by us and what we could do. The doctrine of sin, Studying how sin works can help us come to see more clearly sin's perils and its subtleties, and in turn, help us turn again and again to the power and the preciousness of what Jesus has done for us to fight ongoing sin. I appreciate what John Newton said. He said, If our awareness of indwelling sin humbles us and makes our sovereign Christ more precious to us, then we are safe then we are safe. And lastly, confession and correction. The gospel frees us because we are safe in the gospel. The gospel frees us to admit when we are wrong, when we've sinned or communicate our weaknesses to others and specifically invite them into helping us. And it frees us to confess specifically, just not generally. It's one thing for me to say, yes, I'm proud and I struggle with pride. It's another thing to to confess to my wife, I, 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 that was pride on my part. That was selfishness when I chose to do this on my behalf rather than serving you. That cultivates humility in our hearts. These are just a few suggestions. They are not the only ones. There's myriads of ways that we express our dependence on God and cultivate humility in our life, giving thanks to him, practicing spiritual disciplines in our life. I appreciate CJ mentioning, actually, you can play a very difficult sport. That will help. Play golf often. A very difficult sport will do the work of making you feel inadequate and less than average. And we are all very inadequate and less than average. Golf does that for me. I was talking to a pastor recently, and he was telling me a story about there's a particular ministry that he oversees through the year, and there's a faithful volunteer that's always there, present, helping him. And he's always there to poke at this pastor just to just keep him humble. And he commented to him, he says, You know, you may not be much, but you are all we got. You <laughs> may not be much, but you are all we got. He was playful, but I, I think he's serious. And it helped him. And this comment just seemed to help me. It just helps us keep things in perspective. Who, who, who are we? Yeah, we? We're not much, but it, it's, it's, all, it's all we got. And it's what God chooses to use. Paul instructing the Corinthians, seeking to help them dispel their, their proud elevation of human leaders and giftings, and he, he reminds them that we're all, we should all just consider ourselves servants, and he, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 4, all servants, none, that, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. For who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different? We're, there's nothing different there. And what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it receive it? So who, who are we? We all we have are gifts, gifts from God. And if they are all gifts from God, then why do we boast as if somehow they originated from us? Or that we compare ourselves when somebody else has a gift that's not ours, we realize, well, that's God's gift for them and God's gift for me, and we turn all of that to the Lord. It's an opportunity opportunity for us to boast in the Lord. And so humility is not an opportunity for, for self-flagellating, like beating ourselves down. Humility, pursuit of humility doesn't mean we do away with being ambitious or, or just simply hiding our gifts. These are all forms of false humility, but we, but we move towards one another. We use our gifts to serve. We are ambitious for God's glory, but we're dependent on Him in it. We're turning all the glory back to Him through it. We stand confident in God's love and his grace for us. And, and in that, we are celebrating his goodness and, and we're, we're turning all the praise back to him. And then we can move towards one another with humble, sacrificial joy. And I, as I was working through this sermon this week, just, I, was, I was reminded of the, the observations again and again that I get to see of the way you eagerly use your gifts to serve one another joyfully and turn the praise back to the Lord. You, you, you encourage me, church, by seeing God's humility in you. As God works the Son's humble heart in us, it does turn us outward rather than inward. I love what Keller kind of frames it in his excellent little book, Freedom. It's a freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's what happens. We, We forget our self and we move outward towards those around us, loving them, serving them. And particularly, it gives us a heart for the lost, the others around us. Humility leads us to a heart for the lost with an empathy as we move towards them as ones who are desperately in need of God's grace and mercy as we are. We are no different than them. Save the grace of God that has opened our hearts and eyes to Jesus. He is our only boast. I so appreciate uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon's words on this. This is a, a, a note speaking to pastors, but I think it's fitting for us all. He says, brethren, we shall never preach the Savior of sinners better than we feel ourselves to be sinners in whom he came to save. A penitent mourning for sin prepares us to preach repentance. I preach, says John Bunyan, sometimes as a man in chains and met to men in chains. Hearing the clanking of my own fetters while why I preach to those who are bound in affliction and iron. Sermons rung out of broken hearts are often the means of consolation to despairing souls. It is well to go to the pulpit or shall we say to, to work or to our neighbors at times with God be merciful to me, a sinner, as our upperm- uppermost prayer. I was just talking with Andrew as we were praying before service, and he just used the word, how this so helps us become approachable to those around us. Approachable in that we are saved by grace. There's no boast at all in us. And and we can easily find our hearts indifferent to to those lost around us, I pray that my heart would continue to grow in the opposite direction. But as we think about the gospel and we see and we find ourselves in this humble, broken place, we move towards those around us with this despairing, with compassion and mercy and love, with hope that they would also know Jesus. When we encounter Jesus, we come to know... Paul says in Ephesians, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Immeasurable riches. We have immeasurable riches. How did we get immeasurable riches? Mercy and grace. How did we get his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus? By nothing we could boast in, by nothing we have done, but because of his kind grace towards us. He reminds him, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Why riches? Why kindness? Why Christ? Why His love? By nothing we've done. But because of His grace and mercy. So that there is no boast. There is no opportunity for us to live in pride, no boasting, no boasting except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cross of grace, I want us to continue to, to think and consider the, the beauty of the gospel, the gospel that humbles us, the gospel that, that helps us see the great length and cost and, and of, for our sin, for our lostness, and the grace and love that is displayed towards us because we now are in him. And as we continue to look to that, it it has that humbling effect that will keep our boast not in ourself but in him and will increase a virtue of humility in us so that we could grow in love for him and grow in love for, for others. This is not for our glory. This is for his glory. Let us keep looking to Christ for it is the gift of God so that we may not boast, but only boast in him. Let's pray.